I need all the men to do me a favor. Just stand where you are. This isn't about the men's conference, and it's not about brisket. Just stand up if you would. If you're a guy, stand up. doesn't matter the age, all right? Birth all the way. Um, if you stand up and the women don't, the women, right now, I can give you a secret. They can't hear me. So I want to talk to you about something. Another, I've been married for almost 20 years. doesn't matter if you're married or not. You're about to learn a lesson, all right? Um, the, about a week and a half, two weeks ago, my wife looked at me, and again, almost 20 years into this, she goes, hey, I bought some new outfits I want you to see. Um, would you look at them? Right then I made a, I said, sure, made a mistake. Should, should, here's what you say, honey, it doesn't matter what you put on, it'll be beautiful, right? I'm just trying to help you out here. Amen, guys. They can't hear you right now, so you can say whatever you want to say, all right? So I made that mistake right away. I was like, oh, man, okay, now I have to go upstairs. So I went, she's like, just sit right there, and I'll show you some clothes. And she came out, and, I mean, she always looks great. But I immediately recognized I messed up again. Because it doesn't matter. If, if you say, oh, you look great. And if you don't look at them long enough before you say you look great, they're like, you're just saying that. Hallelujah. And then if you actually say, honey, I don't think that's the best on you, then they'll not, they won't speak to you for three years. Hallelujah. Anybody else like, they can't win. Give me a praise the Lord. Right? And the only guy's not saying praise the Lord on that, you're scared. (laughs) See? God, whoever that was, bless him. Right? And so all of a sudden, I speak for a living, and I get tongue-tied. And I'm like, well, honey, I just think that if you just, like, you know, put that on, and you're like, you know, Amen. And I, I, I just can't get it out because all of a sudden you know that there may be a manipulation of words. What do you really mean? I thought I just told you. You look great. Well, what do you really mean? That you look really great. Well, I can't look great and really great. What do I, right? You can sit down. Now the women can hear what we're really going to talk about. I mean, that's kind of what we're addressing today. We're talking about Manipulation. In, in some sort, not the whole sermon, don't worry, but we're talking about it in terms of what's happening in John chapter 8. We're in this series named en- Encounter, and we're looking at all these different people who encountered Jesus and then what their response was and the transformation that they have in their own life. And we're going to be able to explore John chapter 8. We'd love for you to go there now. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Um, Matthew, Mark, and Luke considered to be the synoptics all really supporting each other and right there with it. John supports it as well, but more of a historical approach. But in John chapter 8, at the very beginning, you'll see um, that this manuscript was not in the original meaning, that as they are walking through all this, they're going, okay, was, um, they didn't have this in some of those original documents and scripts, but then they, they did find it later on. They're like, okay, this is part of it, so it's completely the word of God. But that's what that means. And so here they are, and they are sharing with this story about this woman who was caught in the act of adultery. And many of you may know the story um, because what's remembered about the story is that Jesus sat on the ground and wrote in the dirt. I'm not going to get a lot into that, okay, because we don't know what he wrote. There's speculation about what he wrote. We don't really know what he wrote. I'm not going to go there, okay. But it's this tremendous story that we discover 
that is going, it provides so much challenge for us today. So much challenge for us today. So I'm going to read it for you. Some of you are going to go, why don't they put this on the screen? He puts a lot of other stuff on the screen. I keep saying this. Uh, this primary passage, a lot of time I don't want to put it on there because I want you to open up the Bible for yourself. I want you to find it. Go to your iPad or a phone or whatever else. You can go there if you want to, but I want you to know where it is. And if I put everything on the screen, you don't go there. So even if you're watching online, go open up the Bible. If not, just soak it in right now for its word and for all that it means for us today. John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11, and it reads. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. He came again because he was there yesterday. You're going to figure that out in just a moment. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said. They said this to test him, that they may have some charge to bring against him. So Jesus bent, bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground, and as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to him, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone, to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground, but when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left, al left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they now? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go. And from now on, sin no more. So let me give you a little bit of backdrop here, a little of the backstory. John chapter 7, if you have scripture there, you can go back just one chapter, John chapter 7. Uh, and we already know that Jesus is here and he's celebrating right now with the Feast of Tabernacles, uh, Feast of Booths, right? He's coming in, and it's celebrating. You remember those 40 years of wandering through the wilderness in the Old Testament, right? God by the name of Moses helping to lead and guide all that. So they're celebrating all that God had done in the midst of that. Uh, at the end of that celebration, they would also have this day of just really praying for God's reign because it was the end of a dry season, and they're praying for God to come and so that they can have the festival and the feast that they need later on with the harvest. And so you see all of these different things happening, and Jesus is there for that very reason. And Jesus, even as he's there for this feast and he's celebrating with them, but also praying with them, this is what happens in John 7, 37 through 38. Now remember, they're praying for rain, they're praying for, the, um, for, for all these things to be able to come so they can have the, the the amazing harvest that they need to have, right? And then he says these words. On the last day of the feast, the great day, it says, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So he's already addressing, he's quoting scripture, and he's calling these things out, right? And you know that some of the leaders around him they're, they're burning, and, and if you don't get it, I'll tell you why in a second, but they are, they are just angry in terms of what Jesus is doing and saying because he's speaking words that they don't think that he should be speaking. 
And they want to do everything they can to arrest him, but they can't because it tells us in, um, in John chapter 7, verse 44, if you go to it, we know that he was too popular. It says, for us, in John chapter 7, verse 44, it says, some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. Why? Because he was so popular. And so here he is, and he's saying words that they don't like. They're saying words that they really detest in many ways because they believe that he's using scripture in the wrong way. And they can do nothing about it. They want to do everything they can to get rid of him. Maybe you remember a guy by the name of Nicodemus. He's going to be preached about later on this summer as somebody who encountered Jesus himself and was transformed, okay? Well, even Nicodemus, who was one of them, came to his side and said, hey, listen, what are you guys doing? John seven fifty. he says, Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was once one of them, said to him, or who was one of them, said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? So Nicodemus is saying, guys, there's more to learn here about this guy. There's more to learn about Jesus. Can you, can you calm down a little bit? Because I know you're irate. I know you're upset. I know you're angry. Can you just give him some time? Like, come hear him. Come actually listen to him first. Don't make up your mind about him before you really know what he's about. Maybe you've done that with someone in your own life. You look at someone and you make your decision about who someone is before you ever really get to know him. And he's saying, hang on a second, guys. Doesn't really help because these leaders are so upset that what they're wanting to do is they spend that evening figuring out and coming up with a game plan to trap Jesus, to arrest Jesus, and to get rid of Jesus. So that's what they're doing. That's why we know that overnight they planned to trap Jesus, and Jesus doesn't really care, meaning Jesus knew what was about to come, but he's still going to go back and he's going to continue to teach because that's what he's going to do. He trusts his father, his heavenly father, and he's going to keep doing what he needs to be doing because he knows that he didn't come to just facilitate that one discussion. He knew that he was coming to change all of humanity, and he was going to fulfill that mission. Praise the Lord for that. And so here he is, and he's coming in, and he just starts to teach again and again. And he's even there in the temple, and you would think that he would go off to some corner and like do his own little thing and maybe teach some people, but he didn't. He did it very publicly. In fact, one of the places that is assumed, if you look at this picture, is that he would have done it there on the stairs of where everybody was coming into the outer courts, and it would have been a very popular place. Everybody would have seen him. Everybody would have been hearing from him, and that would not have been cool with them. I, not until right now. Because you see, remember, there, here he is. You can imagine him standing there and teaching and calling out God. But right now they want him to do it probably publicly so they can have a lot of witnesses because they've got a game plan and they're about to what? They're going to trap him. They're excited. They're excited because they finally got a way that they don't think that Jesus can weasel out or manipulate anything or try to get away from what they're about to be able to do in arresting him and getting rid of him. So we see all this unfolding. So this is when they make their move. All of a sudden they approach him and they want to, we know in verse six, they're wanting to bring charges against him so they could arrest him. And they bring in this woman who they say was caught in the act of adultery. Now, we don't know where the man was. I know how it takes two to tango. I don't know where he is, because it was a, a severe crime to commit adultery. We're going to get into that more in just a moment. But all of a sudden, they bring this woman in, 
And they set up this question of interpreting the law that they did not think that Jesus could answer unless he would also destroy himself. So they probably wanted all these witnesses around him. You see, if he would have said, kill her, well, he would have gotten in a lot of trouble with Rome because Rome had already taken away capital punishment at this point. And so he couldn't speak against Rome. Right? But then you have the other part of it, which is the Torah, which is the law itself. And so if he said, hey, you should let her go, then they could accuse him of speaking against the Torah. And so they're going, wait a second here. We've got him. He can't get out of this one. Well, of course, um, we then hear these last words. It's in one sentence. This is so good. In one sentence, he destroyed every glimmer of possibility that they had. When he says, he who is without sin among you, let him be the one to cast the first stone. That's when they invented the phrase, mic drop. God, he just, demo- I mean, one phrase in one sentence, here he comes, and he just says, this is what it is. And all of a sudden, we find them older to younger because they would have watched the older ones first, and the older ones would have left, and then the next oldest, and then the next oldest, all the way down to the youngest. That's the way it would have worked in that tradition. And oldest to youngest, we see them all leave. One by one, they're out of there because even though they spent the entire night before figuring out how they're going to trap this guy, and in one sentence, in one phrase, he annihilates every possibility of trapping him because you cannot trap the definition of freedom, the definition of hope, the definition of grace, the definition of forgiveness. That is Jesus. And all of a sudden, he just jumps into it. And he does it against a topic that is certainly a hot button today when you look at adultery. And then, I already told you, Old Testament-wise, listen, some of the things that they could have done even to a man caught in adultery, and this is even if you were betrothed, you could have been engaged to someone. And if you would have had premarital relationships with them like this, it did not matter. It didn't matter if, it was, if you were engaged or not. None of that at all. But, and we know that in some documentation, you, they would have taken a man and put him up to his knees and dung, and then they would have taken a couple of guys and tied their, uh, put ropes around their neck, and they would have pulled until he had no more air in his lungs into his body, and then they would have let him collapse on the dung. That's one of the things that was a practice before. It tells you the severity of adultery. It tells you how severe it is, and I know that today, adultery, and I, I want to talk about this for a little bit, because today, adultery is a very different thing. Adultery today is, in many regards, it's viewed as a form of self-expression. And you're going, no, yeah. Because you can't tell anybody that they shouldn't act on their desires, right? Because then if you tell someone to not act on their desires, you're just demolishing who they are as a person. And so you can do whatever you want to do, right? That's the, that's the dumbfounding thing about Christianity today. And I don't understand why it's being attacked so much when God is coming in and saying, listen, you all make mistakes. You're all sinners. But I love every single one of you no matter what. If you would just call on the name of the Lord and surrender to me. That's pretty good news. Do you know every other major world religion says you have to earn it? Christianity is the only thing that says you don't have to earn it. It's by grace. That's good news. Amen. 
If you're not awake, we're going to get there. Adultery has become a form of self-expression for us today. And so we need to recognize the severity of this sin. It's significant, guys. And we already know, guys, we, we, you can track it. Some people go, well, yeah, but we're preparing for marriage and knowing if we're really made for each other. And so then you move in together or you have premarital sex and you do all these different things and you sleep with whoever you want to sleep with. And yet we know those people are in higher rates of divorce and brokenness than people who don't. Yet we still keep utilizing that to say we can do whatever we want to do because we think it's a form of self-expression. There is no better way than the way of God. And what's it leading to? You go, go research the number of diseases out there we're not talking about today. It's more rampant than ever before. But we're not talking about it because we think it suppresses people's rights. To what? Pass on disease? Sexually transmitted diseases? That's what it gives us the right to do? So you can't claim Isaiah 55 when he says your ways are, or my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts are greater than your thoughts and then not live by his ways. And his ways is don't give in to it, guys. And I know the culture will look at you and go, oh, you're going to be one of those guys who buy into that. What you are is you're one of those guys who recognize there's a God of creation and his ways are greater than your ways. And you can talk about people go, well, people don't believe in God anymore. Over 98% of people still believe in God. That's the irony of it because they know that they don't have control over things really. And so we've got to be able to talk about adultery. We've got to be able to say, listen, we have an issue. And social acceptance will never remove biblical responsibility. Social acceptance of something will never remove biblical responsibility. Never. It never will do it. Because if, if your definition is completely about how we should live life is completely subjective, that means you're just gonna, every day you got to change and be someone different, especially every five years as quickly as things are changing nowadays. And so you have no objectivity to looking at the word of God and saying, okay, wait, you know what? It doesn't have to change. God's ways are true and they're right. And I know that this is probably, I'm ruffling some feathers right now. I'm probably plucking them out. I, I get it. Because the society have said, this is, you can't tell me that I'm wrong. I don't have to tell you that you're wrong. What I'm here to tell you is that God's word teaches us something that's greater. It teaches us something that's greater. Adultery is any sexual activity, by the way, outside of God's ordained marriage. Adultery is any sexual activity outside of God's ordained marriage. Any of it. You're going, oh, that's not, I mean, come on. Yeah, that's pretty rough to say. Pornography is adultery. I was, right, went to a store with just my wife yesterday, actually, and I said, honey, do you know where I'm looking? And I kept looking at the pretzel store. I was right? She's like, I know why you're looking over there, because if I looked the other way, it was just picture after picture after picture, which is porn. It's soft porn. It does nothing good for my marriage to look at another woman with nothing on, basically. We must stop casualizing our sin. 
Social acceptance will never remove our biblical responsibility. I'll give you some passages to go to because you know that here at Chapel Point, we firmly believe in the word of God for his instruction and for his truth. Uh, one of the passages I, was in, I would encourage you to put down if it's not theirs, Hebrews 13.4. Hebrews 13.4 instructs us so clearly where it says, let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled. Undefiled, nothing there that is not of God, Right? To be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. Another passage to look at is, you can always go to um, Exodus chapter 20, 10 commandments. Do not commit what? Adultery. He's very clearly speaking to us about that. The passage that you can look at is in Matthew chapter 5. We already know that he's starting his messianic ministry, right? Sermon on the Mount, off the Sea of Galilee, and there he is. And he's saying, even looking at another woman is adultery. Adultery is any sexual activity outside of marriage. And we don't wait to even contemplate the seriousness and the impact that it's going to have on future relationships, on kids, on families, on testimony and on witness and everything else that comes into play. And so here they are, and they come together, and they bring this woman. And you've got to understand the severity of such a sin, especially in that time frame. And all of a sudden, here they come with this woman caught in adultery, and they say, what do you want us to do with her? Long story short, he looks at her after everybody else leaves and says, your sins are forgiven. sins are forgiven. Now go and sin no more. Now what that should do for us is it should help us to understand that regardless of the severity of the sin, all can be redeemed in the name of Jesus Christ. That's good news. It doesn't matter how many times you've messed up before, you can be restored in a relationship with the Almighty God. It doesn't matter how many times you've messed over people financially, you can be restored by the grace of God. It doesn't matter how many affairs that you've had, you can still be restored by the grace of God. It doesn't matter how many times you have sworn and messed up over and over and over again, you can be restored by the grace of God. That's good news. Do I need to tell you some more? It's good news. So some of you are going, man, he's beating me up today. Listen, if you're living in sin, it may feel like I'm beating you up. But what I'm saying is if you were com just come and repent, that literally means to turn away from your sin and turn around and go the other way. If you repent of that sin and come before God, he can forgive you. And God, here's the beauty of what God can do. God can take anything, even if he doesn't design it, even if it's not his will, not his way. He can take anything that's surrendered to him and use it for good, but it must be surrendered to him. And so here comes this woman, and you know that by the time all these guys walk away from her, you know that she's got to be nervous, because now she's just sitting there with this guy who starts to draw on the ground. Now, let's, let's talk briefly about all these guys who walked away from him. 
That's amazing to me. And it's actually sad to me. And here's why. Let me take you back, just remind you very quickly, John chapter 7, even Nicodemus, one of their own, is coming and trying to say, hey, at least listen to what the guy has to say first. Like, learn from him. Don't you want to learn from what he's got to say before you make these judgments and you want to arrest him and get rid of him? Like, learn from him. And here's the thing. Here come these guys in John chapter 8, and they're not willing to because as soon as he calls out one phrase and annihilates any possibility of trapping him, they all leave. You see, they had already predetermined who Jesus was and what he could do. And them predetermining who Jesus was limited them, prevented them from discovering the fullness of God. Wouldn't it have been amazing if these guys would have been like, oh man, we took all of us together, spent all night trying to do this. We thought we had him in one sentence. He annihilates us. We need to learn from this guy. But they don't. They leave. And so often our predetermined idea, our predetermined view of who Jesus is keeps us from living in the fullness of God and seeing him in a greater way, a more magnificent way. And so we're stuck. And even those of us who have grown up in the church, we've done that. We've, we've grown up and all of a sudden we don't think any greater about Jesus than when we were 12 years old. And friends, if that's the case, that's a problem. Our predetermined view of Jesus has limited God working in our lives from us seeing a bigger picture of who he is. Your view of Jesus determines his impact on your life. And they couldn't wrap their minds around the fact that maybe they need to ha- needed to have a different view of Jesus. And so they all left. I mean, I've got to come to that conclusion because they all left. They didn't stick around at all. They were gone. The younger ones just waited for the older ones to leave, and then they go, the younger ones, they're gone, and there's nothing but the woman and the man, uh, or Jesus left. That's it. And maybe, maybe you're someone who needs to allow God to paint a bigger picture of who Jesus is in your own life. Greater love, greater forgiveness, greater mercy, greater hope, greater purpose, greater life. Maybe that's something that you need to do and not allow your predetermined view of Jesus to keep you from seeing him as more. It continues on. And and I'm amazed because here's this woman who she reminds me a little bit of all the other people who have encountered Jesus. I started this on Mother's Day and you can tell how much we love um, scripture here because later on after I preached on Mother's Day, that's the day that we started this series called Encounter. And they're like, hey man, way to go. You just preached on the demoniac on Mother's Day. And I didn't even make the connection at all. Um, but there was nothing implied, I promise. But the demoniac, I think about him. Jesus didn't cross the sea to go see the demoniac and go, hey, tell me about all your past and all the ways you've messed up. The next week you had the woman at Simon's house who washed Jesus' feet with her hair and offered the alabaster jar or flask of ointment. And um, He didn't say, hey, tell me all the ways you've messed up first and make sure you really sit in pity and just really just ponder all the screw-ups in your life. And then you heard about uh, Zacchaeus last week from Pastor Luke. Notice that never do you find Jesus going, hey, let's relive all your misery. Isn't that good? He just says, hey, by the way, um, 
Your sins are forgiven. Go and sin no more. Here's the thing. This woman, her sins were forgiven, but he did instruct to now go sin no more. He did say, hey, listen, there, there's something happening in your life. And, and fact, repentance is a hard thing because if you, t- if you tell people they need to repent, you're saying that they have sin in their life and nobody wants to be told that they have sin in their life. But you know what? You all do. I do. Even with my own kids, I find myself saying, hey, even as I pray for them, God, just let them know who you've created them to be. Um, encourage them. Lift them up. Let them know how gifted they are. And I build them up so much in it. But do I teach them enough about needing to repent? Because my kids need to repent because we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But the beauty is that God can free us from that sin as well as anybody else and anything else. He is the one who provides eternal life, eternal hope in all things. You ever found that? Like, we don't want to talk about it, but there's two different phases here. One, we need to recognize we are forgiven, praise God, but we need to recognize our sin, repent of our sin, so that we can be restored by the Heavenly Father. You recognize it, you repent of it, and then you can be restored in the name of Jesus. And what happens is we begin finding forgiveness. We begin finding forgiveness. That's who we become, people who are forgiven. And that leads to a response of surrender. Now, that's the, that's the kicker here, is that we don't want to surrender any of our own thoughts, our own ways. We want to keep living life for ourselves, but God's going, no, I have more for you. I have more for you. Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so we can move beyond those hurts and we can move beyond those sins and we don't have to keep sinning in them and we can run toward the freedom that Christ has for us. But the very thing that these guys did, you know, they left because they had a predetermined view of Jesus and it kept them from really living in the fullness of God. And I think it's one of the greatest travesties that we have today for believers is I think we struggle with the fact that we are forgiven and we don't have to keep living according to who we were. But yet we can start living according to who God desires for us to be. I think it's one of the greatest problems that we have. And our loved ones remind us of our sin all the time. Yeah, but I remember when. Well, yeah, but last time you did such and such. And you don't even let your loved one move beyond their past. Because if they do, that means here's why. Get ready for this. If you let other people move beyond their past, you have to move beyond yours. And we'd rather hold people down than we ourselves move forward. And we need to sit and we need to recognize that we have been forgiven. Good news, isn't it? Here's this woman, a grievous act of adultery. And Jesus looks at her and says, Your sins are forgiven. Now go and sin no more. 
Can, can you just say the words, I am forgiven? Oh, come on, please, one more time. Like, we need to just claim it. We need to recognize that we, too, have been forgiven by the grace of Jesus Christ. And to stop with this predetermined idea of how God wants to jump into our lives, we are forgiven. And that's where the freedom begins to live a totally different life. It's where the freedom comes to say, you know what, I don't have to live according to the old anymore. I can live according to the new. I'm a new creation in Christ. The old is gone. The new has come. I don't have to worry about all those other mistakes I made in my life. Do I need to repent of them? Yes. But now I can know what it is to be surrendered to Jesus Christ and to have his peace, to have his fulfillment. I promise you, Jesus has far more for your life than what this world can offer. I am forgiven. Say it. It's a beautiful witness and testimony. And if you claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ, the way that you're willing to say that I am forgiven to the world is one of the greatest testimonies that you can have. And they're going to go, oh, you've made mistakes too. You're a hypocrite, blah, blah, blah. And I'm going to say, you know what? I'm a hypocrite and I have made mistakes. Here's the difference. I know who can free me from those mistakes. And his name is Jesus. Won't you join me? May we not hide the good news. We are forgiven. We are forgiven. We are forgiven. We are forgiven. We are forgiven from every single piece of trash that we've had before in our life. We are forgiven. That's worth preaching. I'm about to do it again, I think. Stick around for another service. If you know the forgiveness of Jesus Christ, will you please say amen? Amen. And may we stand and worship him.